0: Almost 30 years ago, I had the opportunity to visit my older cousin, who is an Episcopalian priest of the Anglo-Catholic mode, in Philadelphia. And this cousin of mine is very refined and cultured. He's a real student of the fine arts, and on that occasion, he took me downtown to Wanamaker's department store. Now, the purpose of that visit was not to make purchases, but because Wanamakers was featuring a display of a famous painting by Rembrandt von Rhein, and the name of the painting is Aristotle contemplating the bust of Homer. And so my highly refined cousin said to me as we approached the store, he said, Boy, you're going to get an expansion of your understanding of beauty today, he said, cousin. He said, we're going to get to see that world-famous painting, Aristotle contemplating the home of Buster. (laughs) Obviously, I haven't forgotten that slip of the tongue. But today we're going to contemplate a bust, but it's not the bust of Homer, it's the bust of Plato as I've sort of wanted to have Plato come and visit us as we discuss some of his thinking. I was able to secure this bust recently in a trip to Italy in the coastal town of Amalfi, and I also purchased a bust of Alexander the Great because I thought I shouldn't come home with just one because they tell me the two heads are better than one. (laughs) But in any case, today we're going to be talking about my friend Plato, who along with his most famous student, Aristotle, are considered the real twin giants of Western philosophy. In fact, one historian of philosophy made the observation that all subsequent work in the field of philosophy by future generations and future philosophers is nothing more than footnotes added to the thinking of Plato and Aristotle, so prodigious were these men in their own day. Now I also notice that I have a chair with me today, and it's not because I'm going to be lazy and sit down and give you a fireside chat, but there's a method to my madness, as I hope we will see in a few moments. The reason for this chair is really not for me to sit in, but to use as a prop to illustrate one of the most important principles of Plato's philosophy, but you're going to have to wait for that for a couple of moments. Plato was born in the year 427 B.C., and you'll recall that's basically 28 years before the death of Socrates, which means that Plato was 28 the year that Socrates died. Plato wasn't his real name. Plato was his nickname. And it was a nickname given to him by his coach when he was a young gymnast and wrestler who wrestled in the games that were the precursors of what we now call the Olympic Games. But because of his powerful build, he was called Plato, which means broad shoulders. And that became his name by which we know him today. His personal family background was of high nobility. His mother was a direct descendant of Solon, the great political thinker of ancient Athens, and his father was a descendant of one of the recent kings of Athens. So there was great royalty and nobility in the blood of Plato, who was born into an aristocratic family. He's known for being the founder of a very important school in Athens that is called the Academy. And the name Academy is drawn from the name of the person who presumably had owned a piece of property in the northwest quadrant right outside the city of Athens, a man by the name of Academus. And he had some olive groves in this area and donated a parcel of this land so that Plato could start his school. And he honored Academus by calling his school the Academy. And it was situated in the midst of this grove of olive trees, and that's where we get the expression, the groves of academia, that we still use to define the academic world in which we live today. Now over the entrance to the school or the academy, Plato had affixed on an arch over the door these words, let none but geometers enter here. Sort of like Dante's sign over the door to Hades, despair of hope or abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Plato's sign read, Let none but geometers enter here. Now, wait a minute. We think of Plato as the great philosopher, not the great mathematician. Why would he call his school a school of geometry? Well, in the first instance, Plato's school covered the whole scope of intellectual inquiry, from political theory to ethics to the sciences, and so on. So it wasn't just a school for mathematicians, and yet, he says, let none but geometers enter here. Now, to understand that, you can't think of it in terms of what we call modern geometry. The word geometry comes from the Greek word geis, or the word for earth, and the word, when we talk about metri, or meter, we talk about that which is a form of measurement, and so originally the science of geometry was the science of measuring elements of the earth, and it was done by an examination of the forms of measurement, which we did study in modern geometry like the triangle and the rectangle and the square and so on. And so by means of these various shapes or forms that we use to measure things mathematically, we call the science geometry. But Plato went a step beyond this by saying that the universe in which we live is not simply measured by forms, but rather the universe is forms, that reality is mathematical forms or ideas. At that point, we see something of the influence of the earlier Pythagoreans who had a virtually mystical view of numbers, but that's another story for another occasion. Plato's great contribution to the history of philosophy is in the development of what is called his theory of ideas. His theory of ideas, or it's sometimes called his theory of forms, his theory of forms. Now Plato is what we call an idealist, or we could say that Plato, more accurately, is a realist. And you say, wait a minute, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth? How can he be both an idealist and a realist? Well, let's think about that for a second. When we use the term idealist over against the term realist, what do we usually have in mind? We think of an idealist as somebody who's kind of Pollyannish, who lives in a make-believe world of ideals, who never comes to grip with the grim and harsh realities of the actual world in which we live in. And a realist is the one who draws his heroes warts and all. He doesn't try to give us a phantom image of ideal perfection. So for us, a realist stands in stark contrast to an idealist. But when we call Plato an idealist and a realist, we are using those terms in a significantly different way. Let's see if I can explain that. Plato said that the ultimate reality, the ultimate realities, I should say, plural, are ideas. The truth is ultimately formal, not material. That the ideas that we have in our minds of various things are a recall of ideas that actually exist in a spiritual realm, what we would call a supratemporal realm, a realm above and beyond this world of physical things that we perceive every day. Now let me see, in order to illustrate that, the use of my prop that I brought here today. I'm going to ask for some help from our audience here to see if we can learn something about Plato's theory of ideas. I have my friend Roger, my super student, who sits here in the front row, and Roger never ceases to amaze me with his prodigious grasp of these difficult and complex ideas, I'm not going to embarrass the adults by asking them questions that they'll stumble over. Instead I, I will go to Roger because I know he'll be able to answer this question. The question I have for you, Roger, it's a very difficult question. You're going to have to think hard. I have this object in front of me. What is it? A chair. All right. Roger, thank you. You got it right on the button. He said, that's a chair. Now, here's the question. How do you know it's a chair? How do you know it's a chair, Roger? You just grew up learning that that was a chair, right? You never saw that chair before today. What do you mean you grew up learning that that was a chair? But you came in here, you never saw that chair before in your life. And yet, as soon as I asked you what it was, what did you say? No hesitation. It's a chair. How did you recognize it as a chair? It has four legs. All right. But you know, horses have four legs, don't they, Roger? Uh, We're going to do this in the Socratic dialogue here. Horses have four legs, but you don't call them chairs, do you? All right. So there must be something else besides this having four legs that made you identify it as a chair. What else? You can sit on it, but of course you can't sit on a horse, can you, Roger? Huh? Do you have anything at home that's, that's kind of long, has three like three sections to it, that has legs, four legs, and you can sit on it, call it a sofa? But you know the difference between a sofa and a chair, don't you? Yes, sir. We could pursue this a little bit further because have you ever seen chairs that don't look exactly like this, Roger? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You've seen chairs that are upholstered and real comfortable, right? You've seen wooden chairs and soft chairs and hard chairs and all different kinds of chairs. In fact, every one of us has probably seen literally thousands of different kinds of chairs, right? Different shapes, different sizes, different material. And yet, when we see these thousands of different particular objects— We can look at them and in spite of the differences that are displayed among them, we still have this uncanny ability to put all of these particulars, all of these specific examples into the same category called chair, all right? And so Plato would scratch his head and say, well, how can we do that? How is it that we have this ability as thinking creatures to recognize all these vastly different objects by the same common universal term called a chair. Or I look out here in the audience and I see people. I see young people and old people, male people and female people, thin people and heavy people, don't I? Blue eyes and brown eyes, every person in this room has their unique identification, and yet I can look at all of these particular examples of people and somehow extrapolate from these different individuals a class that we call human beings or people or mankind. Plato was once challenged to give a succinct definition for what it means to be human. And he said that a man, or a human, is a featherless biped, (laughs) that is, a two-footed creature without feathers, until one of his students threw a plucked chicken over the wall of the academy with a sign around its neck that said, Plato's Man. It was a featherless biped. But in any case, what Plato was saying when he contemplated all of this is how is it that we have this ability to recognize so many particular objects by this universal category of chairness? We have an idea in our mind of chairness. We have an idea in our mind of clotheness. We have an idea in our minds of humanness, of tree-ness, of street-ness. And so whenever we see a particular street or a particular tree or a particular man, such as Plato, we can recognize them insofar as they approximate the idea of humanness Treeness, chairness, streetness, or whatever it is. Now, Plato says the reason that is, is that in this spiritual realm, there is the eternal, perfect idea of tree. There is the perfect, eternal idea of chair. There is the perfect, eternal idea of human and everything that we meet in this world is simply a copy of the archetypal idea or ideal now what he's saying is is that these ideas independently exist apart from us they have real being Now, do you see what Plato's getting at here is the old problem that was left unresolved between Parmenides and Heraclitus. How can we account for both being and becoming? This is the world, the world that we see and perceive with our senses, for Plato is the world of becoming. And the only way we can have any Knowledge of this realm is because above this realm of becoming is the realm of being, where the eternal ideas of things actually exist. Now, let me just pause for a minute and say, do you see how he's called an idealist? He's called an idealist because he says that ultimate truth is found in these eternal ideas. And it is the formal truth that is the highest truth. But the ideas for Plato are not merely constructs of the human mind. They are not just human ways of thinking about things, but these ideas really are. They have ontological status. They have real being. And in that sense, he's called a realist because he believes that the ideas are not just imaginary, but they are real. Now do you see how he can be both a realist and an idealist in the sense in which I'm using those terms at the same time. Now one of the important aspects of this kind of thinking that has had a profound effect on every one of you and of your lives down to this very day. You live in a world, you grew up in an environment where you even now struggle with the idea that physical things, food, drink, sex, anything that is physical sort of is infected by a shadow of evil. Even in the church, we saw the church in the Middle Ages in the monastic movement and so on try to deny all things physical, things of bodily appetites like hunger and drink, and that these participation in eating and in sex and in drinking were necessary, of course, for human survival and for the propagation of the species they were necessary evils. Where does that idea come from? I mean, it doesn't come from the Old Testament, where when God creates a physical world, what's His judgment on it? It's good. It can be misused, and there are evil uses of good things, but there's no inherent wickedness to the physical as far as the Bible is concerned. But remember, in Plato's schema, you have two worlds, the ideal world, the eternal world of ideas and then this world where you have the particulars. Now, these particular objects that we recognize as chairs, he calls receptacles. A receptacle is something that receives and contains something. And for Plato, the receptacle is the particular object that copies to some degree the pure idea. But all receptacles, that is, all physical things, you, me, this chair, the tree, the street, anything that is physical is a receptacle, and anything that is a receptacle is, according to Plato, an imperfect copy of the spiritual ideal so that by its necessary state of existence, anything physical is imperfect. Now, when he says imperfect, he means metaphysically imperfect, but it's a short step from metaphysical imperfection to moral imperfection, so that anything that is imperfect lacks pure goodness. And from that, we get a whole history of philosophies that reject and deny the goodness of the created world. For example, in the Christian faith, as we will see in our next lecture, we believe in the resurrection of the body. That's part of our faith, the redemption of the body. For Plato, redemption comes when we get rid of the body. It's redemption from the body, when you're only really redeemed when you live in a pure state of spirit, and of idea. Now, this has all kinds of implications for Plato's theory of knowledge, which we'll look at in our next session. Back in the decade of the 60s, the famous theologian Karl Barth once gave a whole year's worth of lectures on the theology of the 19th century liberal theologian, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And in order to enhance his lectures, Bart brought into the classroom in Basel a bust of Frederick Schleiermacher. And throughout the course of the years, he was lecturing on Schleiermacher and being critical in his analysis of Schleiermacher, he would direct his remarks to that bust that was there on the podium. And I was told by students who attended that particular lecture series that on the last day of class, when he was all finished with his critique of Schleiermacher, Bart walked over to the bust and said, "Well, so much for the theology of Schliemerocker." And took his hand and knocked the bust on the floor and broke it into a hundred pieces. I'm not going to do that with my bust of Plato because I can't afford to buy a new one. But I would like to pose a question to you, Mr. Plato. You're telling us about all these ideas that have perfect being and are not in a state of becoming, and and the things in this world are simply imperfect receptacles. What well, I want to ask you is, how do you know that? Now, what kind of a question is that? Plato, how do you know? Well, when we look at the history of philosophy, we see that philosophers are concerned with many different areas of truth. And in antiquity, the primary focus of the philosophers was on the level or in the realm of metaphysics, and I've already defined that as the the realm above and beyond the physical realm. They were interested in what might also be called, as another name for this, ontology. That is the science of being. What is the real essence or substance or stuff of reality? What is its being? That's the metaphysical quest in the history of philosophy. But a second major concern for philosophers historically and also in the ancient world was the subdivision of philosophy that we call epistemology. And epistemology deals with the science of learning. And it seeks to answer the question, how do we know what we know? Do we know things strictly through having a sensory experience of them by seeing, feeling, tasting, touching, hearing, and so on? Or is the primary way we get at truth through the formal actions of deduction and logic the use of our mind? Or is it a combination of those two things? Or is it something else altogether, like flashes of intuition or mystical apprehension? Those are questions of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Well, Plato is important not only for giving to the world his theory of ideas, but also for expounding another theory that is identified with him called the theory of recollection. The theory of recollection. Now, to understand that, we have to step back a little bit. Remember where we were in our last session with his idea of ultimate ideas and imperfect copies in this world. Since everything that we encounter in this world is only an imperfect copy of the real ideal or the ideal real, then if we're really going to understand truth, we have to get beyond the realm of personal experience, of senses, of what we see and perceive. we got to get beyond physical things to get to that ultimate realm of ideas. Now, Plato made an important distinction, a distinction between opinion and knowledge." And what he was searching for was knowledge. He didn't want to just canvas people's opinions and hear what everybody thought about this or thought about that. He wanted to get to real, sound, solid knowledge that you could take to the bank. Perhaps his most famous illustration is the illustration or the parable he tells about the cave. You've all heard of Plato's cave. Two Restate it quickly in in abbreviated form. He tells the story of some prisoners who from birth are chained inside a cave. And they are facing a wall. And there is a partition behind them, and then behind the partition is the entrance to the cave where some light from the sun comes in, and it bounces over this partition and so on. casts shadows on the wall. Now, the way the prisoners are situated in their chains is that the only thing they can see in this dimly lit cave are the shadows dancing on the wall. They can't see each other. They only see the shadows of each other. And from their limited perspective, their whole appropriation and apprehension of reality is limited to the shadows on the wall. But what Plato is trying to say is the shadows are not real. I mean, they're real shadows, but they only are illusory images of the reality that they're reflecting on the wall in order To have true knowledge, one has to get out of the chains and out of the cave and out into the light where they can now see things as they are. Now remember, this is an illustration, because he does not believe that people who get out of the cave and look in light of the sun and look at objects have therefore entered into the realm of the ideal. No, he's using an earthly analogy to talk about this spiritual concept of knowing eternal ideas." Now, in order to get in touch with the eternal, what is required much more than the senses is the use of the mind. Because for Plato, the mind is interrelated with what we would call the soul. And Plato, who had been influenced by the Pythagoreans, believed that every human being has, within his or her body, an eternal soul. That soul, the soul of the person, has always been. It is eternal, and it is from the realm of the forms or of the ideas. And that eternal soul that is in your body has inside of itself already all the knowledge that there is in the eternal realm, so that when you are born, you are born with the knowledge of the eternal, the knowledge of these ideas already contained in your soul or in your mind. Now that may seem strange to us, but that's very important in the history of philosophy because Plato is talking about what we call innate ideas, ideas we are born with, ideas that are inherent within the human mind. They're not learned. They're not acquired. They are innate. You're born with them. Now, a technical way to describe that in philosophy, and if you ever do study philosophy to any degree you're going to come across this term again and again and again, so we might as well learn it. It's the word a priori. Knowledge that we are born with, knowledge that is already contained in the mind, is called a priori knowledge, which means literally Knowledge that is prior to experience. Knowledge that you gain from experience, knowledge that you learn through observation and experimentation and through the experiences of life, you call a posteriori. That is knowledge that comes after experience. But a priori knowledge is knowledge that's built in, inherent, it's innate. Now, for example, how do you know that two and two are four? Is that a mental knowledge that you have forever, or is that something gained from experience? That's an ongoing debate among philosophers and students of epistemology. Does Christianity believe that you have built-in knowledge of anything? Yes. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are born with a sense of God, that we have built into our minds a conscience. God has written His law on our hearts, and before we ever study anything, we already have a sense of what is right and what is wrong, built into our souls, as it were. So, the idea of a priori knowledge is not found simply in Plato. In fact, the whole history of what we call rationalism on one side of the philosophical scale has some form of a priori knowledge or other, which we will see as we go along. But I'm just introducing these concepts to you at this point in our historical survey. Now, Plato's view, as I said, was heavily influenced by Pythagoras. And Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans taught a doctrine that was called the doctrine of the transmigration of the soul. Transmigration. Now that's a fancy word. Transmigration. Now there's nothing in that word that you haven't heard many, many, many times. You've heard the prefix trans. Transoceanic, transAmerican, huh? Trans World Airlines, TWA. Trans means across. Okay you transport it, you take it across from one gate to another, and so on. And you've all heard the word migration. There's emigration, immigration, migratory birds. Birds that migrate are birds that move from one location to another. So transmigration just simply means moving or migrating across from one something to another something. Well, the concept of transmigration of the soul that was developed by the Thagoreans, you've heard of, only you hear it by a different term. The term you usually associate with this idea is the idea of reincarnation, very important to Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion, that says that the souls of people, go through many different incarnations. That is, to be incarnate means to be in a body, in the flesh. And so when you were born, you were born with a soul and a body. Now, Christianity believes that that only happens once, and then the judgment. You're born, you live, you die, you're judged, and so on. But Eastern religions that hold the reincarnation say, you may be born in this life, and you may have Bridie Murphy experiences under hypnosis and recall that you were the Prince of Wales back in the 16th century, or something that you've lived 27 times in the past, either as a human being or as some animal. Some people have views that they want to make sure that they protect the lives of animals because they believe that some people, when they die... Are reincarnated as animals, depending on how you lived in this world. The idea being that if you live a virtuous life in this world, in your next incarnation, you'll have a better deal. You'll get a higher state. Or if you've led a bad life in this world, in your next incarnation, you'll have a lower state of existence, and so on. But the basic principle is that the soul keeps moving from one body to the next, or from one place to the next. Now, Plato believed in a form of reincarnation, which he borrowed from the Pythagoreans. And so he would say that the soul, however, does not start when you are born. The soul is eternal. And when the soul is born into this particular incarnation, it brings all this knowledge of the eternal realm. However, once the body captures a soul, the impact of the body on the soul is to dull and obscure and hold down the clarity of vision that would be found in a pure soul or pure mind. That's why Plato would speak of the body being the prison house of the soul. Now, again, think about how we learn. We learn with our eyes, our ears, our hands, and so on, as well as with the thoughts of our mind. Now, in our day, we put most of the emphasis in the scientific realm in our ability to learn with the senses, empirically, as it were. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, or smell it, you know, it doesn't exist or it's suspect. Plato is just the opposite. Plato believed that the highest way to know anything is through the mind, not through the senses, because the senses are always distorting reality. And even if the senses have a perfect grasp of the reality that they are seeing out there, remember that that reality that they are seeing, the physical world, is at best an imperfect copy of the idea. So that you can't get any further than the shadows on the wall in the cave through what we would call the scientific investigation. To, in order to get real truth, you've got to get in touch with the rational, because the rational perceives the real. Now, if these perfect ideas that are stored up in your soul and in your mind are being suppressed or hindered or obscured by the impact of the weakness of your flesh and the weakness of your body, how do you get at it? Well, again, you get at it through recall, through recollection, through remembering. And how do you get to that remembrance? Back to the Socratic method, by questioning, by contemplating, by reasoning. By dialogue and debate, we try to cut through the prison bars of the body to get down to the rudimentary ideas that are long buried in the soul. And that's the process of education. The process of education is not to give you information you don't already have, but it is to get out of you the information that's already there. See the difference? Now in order to prove his theory of recollection, he wrote several dialogues, one of which was the Meno dialogue, M-E-N-O, fascinating dialogue. I remember when I used to teach ancient philosophy in college that I took a student who had no background in math and no background in philosophy and got him in front of the class, and I played the role of Plato in the dialogue, and this poor student unwittingly was performing the role of the character for whom the dialogue is named, Mino. Mino is a slave boy who has no education. And in the dialogue, Socrates is cross-examining Mino and just asks him certain questions that are not designed to inform the slave boy of any information, just asking him basic questions. And what he gets out of the slave boy, after asking the right questions, he gets the slave boy to articulate the Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. He draws some diagrams in the sand and all of that, and has the boy do this, and the boy figures it out and comes up with this classic theorem of math. And Plato says that by this exercise of questioning, probing, dialoguing, proves that the knowledge was already there innately in the mind. All right. Now, for Plato, one of his concerns with this knowledge pursuit was to do what he called the job of saving the phenomena. Saving the phenomena. He saw the saving of the phenomena, the chief task of science. What does he mean by saving the phenomena? What are the phenomena? The phenomena are the data bits that we experience, the shadows in the cave, the things that we see in this world, trees and plains and birds and bees and and water, and streams, and so on. And the scientist is, just like the ancient philosopher, is looking at all of this and saying, how can we make sense out of it? Phenomena happens to refer to that which is the realm of appearances. We see things as they appear. Well, what laws or theories will make sense of all of that stuff that appears to us in our lifetime? So, Plato is saying we need an adequate system of thought that will save the phenomena, that is make sense out of it, redeem it from chaos. And his philosophical system is not just abstract philosophy, but it's really trying to give the metaphysical or philosophical foundation for science, the ultimate theory that will make sense out of everything. That's what he sees as the task of philosophy and the task of science, and that's where they marry. And, of course, the history of science follows very closely the history of philosophy. And you're all aware of what happens with the radical changes and upheavals that take place in the world of science. We talk about paradigm shifts, where a paradigm is a model. And it's a model that we hope is a model of reality, like Copernicus had, like Ptolemy had, like Newton had, like Einstein has. And the purpose of this paradigm or this model is to explain everything that we observe. But the problem is, in every system, scientific system that's ever been devised, there have always been what we call anomalies. And what are anomalies? Anomalies are those little quirks of our experience that aren't explained by the system, they don't really fit, and you get enough of these and these things become bothersome and irksome enough, what happens? Somebody comes along, changes the paradigm, gives us a new model that will then explain these strange things that didn't fit in the old model. And that's the way science moves and progresses forward. That whole business, that whole task is doing what Plato said, saving the phenomena. If you have phenomena that don't fit into the current system, if you want to save that phenomenon, you've got to expand your paradigm and change it. Finally, Plato taught the ultimate idea was the idea of the good, the idea of the good. And he defined it this way, that the perfect ideal of good is the universal author of all things beautiful and all things that are right, and is the source of all reason and truth." Now there's a great argument among historians and philosophers whether Plato's idea of the good is Plato's God. He doesn't say that it is. But one of the reasons why it's so tempting to see it is because it looks so similar to the biblical concept of God, who is absolute, perfect, eternal goodness. Who is the author and fountainhead of all that is beautiful, all that is good, and all that is true. Is it any wonder that apologists such as Justin Martyr would read the things of Plato and say, so much of Plato's thinking seems to reflect the influence of the Logos, the divine Logos, who enlightens all who come into the world. There's an ongoing controversy about the relationship between ideas and events. Some people say that it's the events of history that provoke new ideas, where others insist that it's new ideas that change the course of history. Well, I think this is one of those false dilemmas, sort of like the chicken and the egg, because I think we can understand that there is a symbiotic relationship between events and ideas, where events can provoke new ideas, and new ideas can certainly shape future events. One thing I think we can be sure of, and that is that ideas have consequences. And I think it would be a fascinating study to look at the culture in which we live today, or to look at the history of the world in the last 2,000 years and trace the impact of the ideas of Aristotle down to the present day. Because certainly we are still living in an atmosphere where we are living out some of the consequences of his ideas. Now, in theology, Luther, when he referred to John Calvin, he simply referred to Calvin as the theologian. Obviously, there were many theologians in the 16th century, but when Luther spoke of the theologian, everybody knew of whom he was speaking, namely of Calvin. Likewise, in the jargon of philosophers in Western history, when they simply speak of the philosopher, it's obvious who they have in mind. It is the philosopher Aristotle. Now, we know that Aristotle was a pupil and disciple of Plato. He was the Academy's most illustrious alumnus. But Plato didn't refer to Aristotle simply by calling him the philosopher. Rather, Plato's pet name for Aristotle was the brain. Now... Aristotle had a profound love and virtual hero worship of his teacher, Plato. And Plato obviously had some affection for Aristotle, but the historians will agree that the degree of affection that Aristotle had for Plato was not returned in kind by Plato to his students. And one of the sad notes of that relationship was that when it came time for Plato to choose a successor for himself in the academy, on two occasions he passed over Aristotle. And that very much hurt Aristotle, so that Aristotle left the academy and went out and started his own school called the Lyceum, which was What he called the peripatetic school because his method of teaching was to walk around as he was lecturing, hence the word peripatetic. Also, Aristotle was a bibliophile. That's not an illegal crime or anything like that. That just means somebody who loves books. And he possessed many books and spent a lot of time reading books, and Plato didn't give his full approval to that. Plato thought that people could become too bookish He favored the interchange of live dialogue and discussion as his mentor, Socrates, had instructed him. Plato was also known for his plain style of dressing, somewhat casual, whereas Aristotle became known as a dandy. He had very expensive haircuts, and he was adorned with fine jewelry, and he liked to have tailor-made robes in which to dress, and so they had a little bit of conflict at that level as well. But the big point of debate between Plato and Aristotle, which has defined the difference of Platonism and Aristotelianism ever since, was over Plato's theory of ideas, and consequently over Plato's theory of recollection. So, I mean, when two philosophers disagree fundamentally at the level of metaphysics and at the level of epistemology, that's a pretty significant disagreement. The problem that vexed Aristotle in the thinking of Plato was the problem of dualism. Plato had sought to bring a synthesis or harmony between the thinking of Parmenides and Heraclitus to resolve this tension between the concepts of being and becoming, as I've pointed out. And the way he solved the problem was to speak of two different worlds, the ideal world and the world of the receptacle, the realm of being and the realm of becoming. As I said, his theme song may have been the song that was popular earlier in this century It was called, Two Different Worlds, We Live in Two Different Worlds. You maybe remember that. Some of you do. You do. But in any case, that vexed Aristotle because he didn't see this as really escaping the problem of dualism. And Aristotle had a singular passion for unity. He had a deep desire to have a unified theory of knowledge that would incorporate all of the different sciences, biology and physics and astronomy and ethics and aesthetics and all the rest. And by unifying them without any kind of leftover dualism. And we may add, just as a point of historical interest, that Aristotle also had some students, as Plato had. And his most famous student was a man by the name of Alexander the Great. Of course, Alexander the Great is not known to the world as a philosopher in the tradition of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, but rather we think of him as one of the most important conquerors of antiquity. But what motivated Alexander the Great in his conquest was to bring a unified culture to the ancient world, that we call the process of Hellenization. He wanted to impose the greatness of Greek culture, including the Greek language, on all of the people whom he conquered. And as I have mentioned in the past, when he set out on his world conquest, he took with him a whole, what would be a division, of soldiers who were scientists. Who were there along with the rest of the soldiers for the specific purpose of gathering flora and fauna to be classified back in the school of the Lyceum under the direction of Aristotle to advance the cause of science. In fact, it's been said that the most expensive scientific expedition in all of world history, up to The NASA space exploration program in modern America was the military expeditions of Alexander the Great. But I mention that only in passing to say here is one of those cases where ideas have consequences, where the idea of unity that drove Aristotle was incorporated in the military strategies of Alexander. So, he lived out the philosophical ideal. That's only one of many, many modern results of the thinking of Aristotle. Well, in addressing the problem of dualism, when trying to bring everything into unity, Aristotle developed what we call his theory of substance. Plato had his theory of ideas. Aristotle had his theory of substance. And what Aristotle meant by this is that all individual entities, everything that exists in this world, exists as a primary substance. Now, he said two very important things about these individual entities. Remember, the concrete entities that we find in this world, according to Plato, were called receptacles. They were imperfect copies of the real ideas that exist in this other world, in the ideal world. For Aristotle, the individual objects and entities and things that we encounter in this world are real, and they are substantial, and that every substance is comprised of two aspects or two things, matter and form. Sometimes Aristotle's philosophy is referred to as the theory of form. And I would say that there's no element of Aristotle's thought that has been more perplexing to later philosophers who have sought to analyze and understand the depths of his thinking than his concept of form. And I'll just mention in passing that even to this day, there's an ongoing debate among experts in Aristotelian philosophy about exactly what Aristotle meant by his concept of form. But in this idea of substance that he distinguishes between matter and form, he finds the resolution of the ancient problem of being and becoming. In being and becoming. Now, remember in Plato, being is found in the idea up here, and becoming in the receptacle or material things down here. For Aristotle, being and becoming are found in each individual entity. Every substance that there is contains within it both matter and form. Form is that which gives the object or the subject its being. Without participating in being, without containing being, whatever is couldn't be, so that you couldn't have any real things or real objects unless there was some being within them. But also things in this world, physical things, material things as we know them, also have elements of change, elements of becoming. And that is part of the matter of a thing. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this in our own contemporary ways of thinking. We talk as Christians about a human person as being made up of two distinct substances, or what we call a substantial dichotomy, a duality, not a dualism, but a duality of body and soul. And if you don't have a body, okay, then something is lost from your entity, and if you have no soul, you couldn't live at all. And so, for Aristotle, within each object there was matter and form, and the form is the eternal being. And the matter is that which is changing and is the locus of potential. Now, let's talk about those terms. The other language that Aristotle was fond of using was the language of actuality and potentiality. Anything that is in a state of becoming is experiencing potential or potentiality. It is changing. It is moving from one state to another. And insofar as it is moving, it is actualizing part of its potential. But actuality is a characteristic of form or of being. Now, again, let me illustrate this in simple terms. Have you ever wondered why it is when you plant an acorn in the ground that what... Germinates and sprouts up from that acorn is an oak tree and not an elephant? Or when two people mate and one is inseminated by the other, why is it that the offspring of this union is not a grasshopper? Why do Things produce after their kind. That was a question that Aristotle was asking. And so, he would say that the form of humanness is contained within every person, and the form of elephant-ness is contained within every elephant, and the form of oak-tree-ness is contained within every acorn there is this inner being, what he called an entelechy, you don't need to remember that technical term, that is what moves or directs the particular object to actualize its potential. An acorn is actually an acorn, but potentially an oak tree. And that which determines its potentiality is the form that is found within the acorn. It has the form of oak-treeness. Now, when it comes to this theory, of course, it is important also to see that Aristotle makes another distinction about substance, and it's this. He makes a distinction between what he calls substance and accidents, accidents not accidents which are unfortunate mishaps but accidents now he's saying that every physical object has substance which in turn has matter and form okay and accidents which i'm going to illustrate by these little lines the accidents are the external perceivable qualities of an object. The accidents of this substance, which we call chalk, include whiteness, cylindricalness, hardness, flakiness, and so on. When you look at a piece of chalk, those are the things that you notice or see. You can't penetrate with the naked eye into the molecular structure of this chalk? Or even less are you able to perceive its atomic makeup or subatomic makeup? You don't see the metaphysical substance of the thing. You see merely its accidents, the external perceivable qualities. Ideas have consequences. Every day, somewhere in the world, a priest is celebrating the Mass. And in the Roman Catholic Church, the Church believes that in the miracle of the Mass, the miracle of transubstantiation takes place. And how does the Church define transubstantiation but the change or transformation of substance? When they start the Mass, you have bread and wine, ordinary earthly substances. And that bread has the substance of breadness and the accidents of bread. It looks like bread, it tastes like bread, it feels like bread, because it is bread. And likewise with the wine, it looks like wine, tastes like wine, feels like wine, sounds like wine if you spill it on the floor because it is wine. It has the substance of wine, therefore it has the accidents of wine. But the miracle is this. It's a double miracle. In the miracle of the Mass, the prayer of consecration, Rome defines the, the miracle as this, that in transubstantiation, the substance of the bread is changed into the substance of the body of Christ. While the accidents of bread remain. And the substance of the wine is changed into the substance of the blood of Christ, but the accidents of wine remain. In other words, it still looks like bread and wine, tastes like bread and wine, sounds like bread and wine, and all the rest, but it really is no longer bread and wine because the substance of it, its real stuff, has been changed into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. So that you have the substance of one thing without its accidents, and the accidents of another thing without its substance. You have the substance of the body and blood of Christ, but you can't see them. So you have the substance of Christ without the accidents of Christ, and you have the accidents of bread and wine without the substance of bread and wine. That's why I said it's a double miracle. Now, of course, Aristotle believed, it would have taken a miracle to do that because he believed in the nature of things, that all substances always are co-present with their accidents. And where you see the accidents of something, you can be sure that it has the substance of that same thing underneath it. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck... That is, if it has the accidents of ductness, you can be sure it has the substance of ductness as well. But I only mention that in passing to show you one way in which Aristotle's thinking is still impacting the world every single day. In fact, in 1965, the Roman Church had a crisis because, on the one hand of the Dutch Catechism, and the second of the writings of a Dutch theologian— who challenged the formula of transubstantiation and wanted to change it to transsignification, which ultimately resulted in a papal encyclical of 1965 by Paul VI entitled Mysterium Fide, in which he said, not only does the church maintain the ancient concept of transubstantiation, but insists upon retaining the formula, which formula was Aristotelian in its articulation. So this idea of substance philosophy and the distinction between substance and accidents has had a long-standing impact on the history of ideas. Now, so far we've talked about substance having form and matter. For Aristotle, it would be impossible for pure matter to exist in and of itself because it would be pure becoming, it would be pure potentiality, it would be potentially everything but actually nothing. So you can't have pure, independent matter. But for Aristotle, it is possible to have pure form, which would be pure being or pure actuality. And when we reach that point in his thinking, we come face to face with Aristotle's creative and innovative concept of God as pure form, which we'll look at in our next session. In our last session, when we looked at Aristotle's notion of substance, I talked about his distinction between form and matter, the distinction that corresponds to the difference between being and becoming, between actuality and potentiality. But then when we look at the zenith of his thinking, we see him speaking of his concept of God, which is that of pure form or of absolute actuality, that which has being but no becoming, actuality without potentiality. And popularly, his definition of God is defined as the unmoved mover, or the uncaused cause, the formal first cause of everything else that exists in the world. Now, remember when he had his idea of each entity being made up, every substance being made up of form and matter, except for pure form, that it is the form within something that controls the development of that thing's potential. That's the form within the acorn that moves the acorn to become an oak tree. We've already established that. And so, We now are left with the question, well, if you have all these individual entities running about with their independent forms and matters, how does it all fit together? And we're right back to the question that Thales was asking originally of the one and the many, of unity and diversity. So over all the individual substances that we encounter in the real world. There stands Aristotle's God, who is pure form. He has eternal being. And he also must have the power to organize and generate and move everything else that moves. Remember, the ancient Greeks were looking for the answer to being and to the answer of motion. And so he said that the ultimate source of all motion is pure form. This absolute form directs the individual forms that are moving in this world. Now, how does he do it? Or for Aristotle, the pure form is himself not moving, or itself not moving, yet. It is the mover. How does it move other things? Well, it moves everything, all the other forms, by attraction. And the analogy is the moth and the flame. The flame stays in the same place, but it moves the moth by attracting the moth. It's almost like a primitive sense of magnetism or of gravity, if you will. Now again, Aristotle's God is not a personal God like Judeo-Christianity has. It is this ultimate, pure being of force and power from which everything else comes. And of course, this being is eternal and exists by necessity. As I said, ideas have consequences. The greatness of Augustine, who was considered the greatest theologian of the first millennium of Christianity, was that he was able to create a kind of synthesis between biblical Christianity and Platonic philosophy. Likewise, and this is a bit of an oversimplification in my opinion, but nevertheless it's the standard rap, that the greatness of Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, was his ability to create a synthesis between Christianity and Aristotelian philosophy. Now, as I said, that's oversimplified because there were many elements of Aristotle's philosophy, particularly with respect to his understanding of the relationship between God and the world, that Aquinas comprehensively rejected. But we'll wait until we get to Aquinas before we see that. But for now, we have the rudimentary concepts of an eternal, self-existing being that must be for anything else to exist, a necessary being, as it were. But there is no concept of conscious, personal, divine providence or of a voluntary creation in Aristotle's view of God. His view of God, Will Durant referred to Aristotle's God is being somewhat similar to the King of England. He reigns, but he doesn't rule. He's more or less a figurehead there that's a philosophical necessity to explain the things that are. Now, since we've seen already the significant difference between Aristotle and Plato with respect to their metaphysics, their doctrines of being and becoming, that also falls over into the realm of epistemology, where Aristotle also differed sharply from his mentor with respect to the idea of how we know what we know. Remember Plato had his theory of recollection, where the ideas are embedded in the souls of all people, and it's just a matter of getting that knowledge out that's already there, so that knowledge is, if you remember the technical term, a priori. For Aristotle, knowledge is a posteriori, that is, it comes from experience. It comes initially through sense perception. A sense perception is an impression that we have through one of the five senses, an experience of seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling, those are the senses, and we perceive things through those five senses. And from sense perception comes an image in the brain or in the mind. You see something and you have an image of what you see in the mind. And then out of these images come ideas. So that knowledge or ideas are dependent not upon recalling information you're born with, but from learning things through this process of using the senses with the mind working with the senses. Now, the mind does have a priori abilities, no knowledge, but abilities. The mind is that organ in the body or in the human person that has the ability to work with the raw data of sensation that we have to synthesize these impressions, to abstract them, to combine them, put them together, and form intelligible ideas. Now, at this point, I'm going to give you another distinction. And that is this distinction that we make in philosophy between realism and nominalism. Now, if you recall, when we looked at Plato, I confused everybody when I said Plato is at the same time a realist and an idealist, using those terms in this way, that for Plato, the ideas that we have, the ideas of humanness, chairness, and so on, that those ideas are real entities, and hence he is called a realist. For Aristotle... Ideas are not real in the sense of having being within them. And so the old debate that goes on through the Middle Ages and even today, that is called the argument over realism and nominalism, goes back to this dispute between Plato and his disciple Aristotle. And it goes back to two words, not in Greek but in Latin, where we have. The word race in Latin, and every attorney or judge knows what that means. A race in legal terms is the thing that's the matter. A race is simply the word for thing. And the word nomina, nomina, in Latin means name. We say that some people are nominal Christians. We mean by that they are Christians in name only. We talk about denominations or nominating. You name somebody for a particular office in an election. That's a nomination, putting their name up for election. And so the word nomina means name. Nominalism means simply that universals... Universals, which in this case are generic ideas, tree-ness, elephant-ness, humanness all these ideas that we have that we universalize for Aristotle are not things, but their names. I had a chair up here when I talked about Plato And I said, how do you recognize that this chair is a chair? And how can we call so many different entities by the same name, chair? Well, for Plato, Plato says, well, in the eternal world there's this pure chairness, this pure idea of chairness, and when we see a close approximation of it, an imperfect copy of it in the material world, we say, aha, I'm getting a recollection of that idea of chairness, and so I identify this object as a chair. Aristotle says, no, he says, that's not how it works. He said, we start to learn and we perceive an object in our mummy, we say, what's that? And you say, well, that's a chair. And then you see another object, and your mother tells you that's a chair too, even though it differs significantly from the first chair, that your mind has the ability to have all these sensations and all these images, and to put them together and abstract, combine, and relate these experiences, and come up with a generic concept of chairness. Doesn't mean there really is such a thing as chairness, there's just this universal idea that is a construction of the mind. It's a name, and that's all it is, is a name, that we assign to universal general categories. And we use that when we apply particulars into those various different spheres. And so we would say that Aristotle was not a realist in the sense of believing that universal ideas had independent reality. But he was a nominalist in so far as he believed that universal concepts are merely mental names that we have conceived by the mind. He also taught that truth involves conformity between the mind and a thing. This is an early form of the correspondence theory of truth. What he meant by that is when your mental idea corresponds to the external object that you are seeking to know or conforms to it, when your idea of chair, of the particular chair that you see, corresponds to the reality of that chair, you have truth. When your idea does not conform to that actual object, you have error or you have falsehood. And so part of the whole process of learning is to constantly seek more precision and exactitude in conforming our ideas or concepts of things to actual entities that exist out there. Now, in all of this, Aristotle thought that at the beginning of knowledge, there have to be certain rules that we follow for science to take place, and he distinguished among all these different disciplines of investigative inquiry. As I said, physics, biology, astronomy, ethics, jurisprudence, and aesthetics, and all the rest." He said, but there are certain principles of knowing that have to be applied to all fields of inquiry for science to be possible. And so, he talked about the role of logic in the knowing process. Now, it's important that Aristotle did not consider the study of logic a separate, independent science from all of the other sciences that he was engaged in. But rather, he called logic the organon of all science. Now, the word organon simply means instrument. Just like musicians have instruments that they need to use to play music, and the sculptor has an instrument, namely the chisel or the hammer, that he needs to have to make his statue, so the instrument that we need in order to construct real knowledge is logic. And he sees logic as a necessary instrument for all intelligible discourse. I'm going to explain that in a second. But first, it's important, particularly in light of the age in which we live, which is one of the most anti-rational periods in the history of Western thought, where people are not only accepting contradictions and irrationality, they're glorying in it. And we've seen the break up of rational, coherent thought. Remember Francis Schaeffer's little book, Escape from Reason. Existentialism has launched a massive assault against the rational, and so on. And we've seen in our own day the theater of the absurd and John Cage's arbitrary forms of music and so on. Aristotle did not invent logic, let me say it again, Aristotle did not invent logic any more than Christopher Columbus invented America. What Aristotle sought to do was to articulate how logical categories function. He didn't think that he was the first logical person. He didn't think that logic didn't exist before him. He's simply asking the question, as a philosopher, what has to be for us to be able to speak intelligibly about biology or astronomy or physics or anything else? And he said, well, there are certain basic needs that have to be met for intelligibility to occur. And one is that our statements be logically constructed. What he means by that is that they not violate the first law of logic, which is the law of non-contradiction. Before I go into that, let me just give one other distinction he makes in terms of his exposition of how logic works. He says that logic and all science depend upon the relationships between the general and the particular, or what we would say, between the subject and the predicate. If I'm a biologist and I want to know what an amoeba is, I may say an amoeba, in order to distinguish it from a frog, I will say an amoeba is something. I will predicate characteristics. I will mention the particulars that define an amoeba, and then contrast it or compare it with the particulars that define a frog. Now, when you were in junior high school or in grade school, you learned about the whole process of classification, where you have the genus and the species, the kingdom and the phylos, and so on and we say well you know there's the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom now they're both examples of living things but they're two completely different kingdoms they have one thing in common there's the general they're both bios they're both alive okay but then we talk about different kinds of life to distinguish between animals and vegetables, or plants. Now, in defining things, you pay attention both to similarities and differences. We are all in the animal kingdom, but we're not baboons. We further differentiate and particularize within the animal kingdom the difference between human beings and baboons. And then we go into further precision when we talk about male and female. And we further particularize by making additional predications about individuals, where this man has a name, he has an age, he has a certain height and weight and so on, where we get more and more and more precise. But that's what's necessary for knowledge to take place and for language to work. You need both the general and the particular. You need the subject and the predicate, and they cannot be brought in irreconcilable opposition to each other. So, therefore, he postulates the law of non-contradiction, which says that A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship, which in simple terms means that this piece of chalk cannot be a piece of chalk and a kangaroo at the same time in the same way. Now I can be a father and a son and a brother all at the same time. We may predicate three distinct things about me at the same time, but not in the same relationship. I cannot be a son to my father and have him be my son at the same time and in the same relationship." Something cannot be what it is and not be what it is at the same time in the same relationship. Now, there can be nothing simpler or more foundational to human intelligibility than that. And yet, in our day, we've seen wholesale and widespread rejection of the most foundational principle that Aristotle defined for science. And it's not only fatal to theology, it's fatal to science because it removes the necessary instrument for understanding. Now there are many other contributions that Aristotle has given to the history of philosophy. Again as I said, some have said that the whole history of theoretical thought is only a footnote to Plato and Aristotle, but since this is an overview, we're going to have to leave those other matters for your further research.